0: Welding instructor Alex Declare knows VR training platforms like Forge FX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that
0: exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey,
1: welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. On previous episodes of this show, we've covered the fact that women are often underrepresented in medical studies and in research in general. That's also true when it comes to diagnosing sensory processing disorders like ADHD, autism, synesthesia. And that's why Janara Narenberg created the Neurodiversity Project, which specifically aims to give voice to women who have sensory processing issues, or as she likes to put it, neurodivergent minds. I've often thought it's interesting that voices of women with autism in particular have often provided some of the most poignant and clear descriptions of what it's like. People like Temple Grandin, Greta Thunberg, Donna Williams. And yet so often when it comes to diagnosing these disorders in children, the focus is on young males. Why is it the case? Are girls harder to diagnose? Or does society lead them to conform in a way that makes it possible for them to hide some of their neurodivergencies? And is that a good thing? Because it means it's easier for them to live in a neurotypically dominated society Or are we condemning these girls to years and years of emotional and mental trauma? Janar Nirenberg is the founder of the Neurodiversity Project. She's also a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health and UC Berkeley. In her new book, Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World that Wasn't Designed for You, she applies her journalistic lens and her own personal experiences to explore the topic of neurodivergent minds, especially in women. Janara Narenberg, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So, I want to first ask you sort of what led to the production of this book. Uh, you know, you, you, you've infused a number of your personal experiences into it, but also you're a journalist. So, tell us about how this book came to be.
2: Sure. Um, Divergent Mind was really the convergence, actually, of my own personal story and um, the scientific. Research that I was coming across. Uh, this was about four years ago. I, you know, I had I went to UC Berkeley. I was a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health, and I've been a journalist for for ten years now. And I was reporting abroad uh, for CNN and Fast Company, covering a range of topics. And when I moved back to the states, you know, I was uh, I was already married. I I had uh, a two year old, and I started noticing that I had significant trouble in a few areas. Um, hyperfocusing was was very easy for me. Um, you know, diving into neuroscience research or diving into a, a profile on someone for a story. But when it came time to switch gears, actually going from that state of of hyper focus to then doing the laundry, or doing the the dishes, or having to figure out food, it would take me a long time, and it, w- it was unsettling. And I didn't have a, a term for this at all. And um, you know, I had done therapy before, like most people, and therapists always referred to my anxiety actually, but no one ever mentioned sort of like executive functioning challenges, something like perhaps ADHD or even the autism spectrum, but. Suddenly, I started coming across this research online, and things were popping up in my Facebook feeds, actually, about how women were being missed in the research when it came to ADHD and and autism. And I had never considered these things before, but uh, everything I was reading was really resonating. And uh, so I just started diving into it again from a personal and, and professional perspective. And I did not seek out formal diagnosis. Um, in a sense, this book, Divergent Mind, really was just my way of wrapping my head around all of this material and these research insights and enabled me to realize that I was somewhere along these various spectrums but because of my proximity to this work and, and working from home and, and, and not being in school, I didn't feel the need to have sort of a, an expert's label or, or diagnosis, for example, that is very necessary for some people in, in other circumstances.
1: And yet that's something that I think as we're entering an era in which neurodiversity is a term used much more commonly is being called into question right, is, is this is the very label that we are applying to people. And your book makes the point that uh, there is even a, a gender uh, kind of divide between how these labels get applied and how people who identify as women might uh, be lost in, in terms of the help that might be out there. So I, I kind of want to sort of talk a little bit about this idea of neurodiversity, the idea of, you know, we're all different to a certain extent but some of us are more different than others and and how that kind of jives with you.
2: Yes. So you're asking about what does neurodiversity mean and sort of the gender lens? Yeah, like I'm sorry that was a
1: <laughs> terrible question. But essentially I guess the thing that I and I, and I'm and I I think is I find this really I get tongue tied talking about it because I think there are a lot of people who do feel very strongly one way or another about the, the way that we use language to describe the very innermost ways in which our minds work. So let, let's start with the term neurodiversity. What does it mean? What does it encompass? And has it become just a kind of term that just means, hey, you know, we all think a little bit differently? Or is there something deeper to the use of that term now?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. These are great questions and I think they're very important. And uh, so neurodiversity, the term itself just refers to, you know, an acknowledgement that we do have a, a wide array of of brain makeups in in our human species right it was coined by the sociologist judy singer who's from australia um it started you know in the autistic community but very quickly was um sort of incorporated in other communities like bipolar and and adhd and dyslexic and you know, it's evolved in many directions. Um, some people uh, really focus on neurodiversity at, at work, and you know, how do we make space for different minds? And some people focus on sort of the the, the political aspect and, and looking at, at human rights. And while, yes, of course, it, it's an acknowledgement that uh, everyone's brains work differently, it's, it's, its utility is really in how it's applied for people whose minds work significantly differently, I, I would say. I think that's, you know, that's the evolution of the term. It's, it's applied in many different contexts. And yeah, we, we can talk further if, if you have concerns about the term or you want to know more about how it's being employed or...
1: Yeah, well, you make you make the point in your book a number of times that um, any kind of label, any kind of diagnosis, uh, when it comes to mental health in particular, has a place in his in history, uh, and that you know there are certain reasons why the DSM five, which you know by many people is considered the sort of gold standard uh, diagnostic manual for mental illness, uh, and you know th- why there are certain disorders that are in there now that weren't there 20 years ago and things that were there 40 years ago are no longer there, you know, homosexuality being an example of something that has since people have, you know, realized is not, you know, a mental illness. That's just absolutely the wrong way to think about it. And so even though it can have a neural signature, right? We can we can distinguish certain aspects of, you know, in brains, but of course that that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. So I guess that's kind of what I wanted to hear your thoughts on having, having gone through this literature, having, you know, looked at the kind of kind of history of, of diagnosis, where are we today? And is there anything that we are losing by um, sort of being more kind of, I don't, I don't want to say inclusive, but maybe that is kind of what I mean by, you know, using a term neurodiversity rather than uh, a specific label, like this is a person with autism, or this is a person with ADHD, etc.
2: Yeah, I mean, this touches on many themes. And I think it just kind of depends on who you speak to. And I certainly cannot speak for everyone. And You know, again, I'm I'm a journalist, so I'm you know an observer of some of these things. Obviously, I'm I'm living some of these things, but I think it depends on who you're speaking to and and what their profession is, and also what how they're employing these terms. For example, um, in the book Divergent Mind, I interviewed Joelle Salinas, who is an amazing neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and and at Harvard Medical School, and. He is very clear that um, he doesn't view the DSM as sort of this all-encompassing so-called Bible you know I mean he sees it as you know it's really useful if someone is expressing distress um, you know they're they're looking for an answer they 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 want a label perhaps they're seeking out medication you know great that's when it's really useful it's not as necessary when we're just looking at, you know, how to categorize human beings in general. You know, I think, for example, there are many people who have elements of, of ADHD or autism or other things like sensory processing disorder. But you know, they don't necessarily feel the need for a label. Maybe they don't want it. So again, I just think it it depends on, on who you're talking to. I mean, I would say in my own life, the terms neurodiversity and the specifics of ADHD and autism and high sensitivity, even something like synesthesia, which is not part of the DSM, or it's it's not it's not considered a uh, a mental uh, disorder. It's it's um, sort of a, a developmental difference. For me, these terms have been very very powerful because you know there were experiences I had in childhood and into adulthood that I just had no words for. And I think, and I talk about this a lot in the book that um, you know when people lack the vocabulary, often what happens is that they kind of go into these shame spirals because they just, they don't, they can't quite conceptualize the ways in which they're different from others. And then along with that comes depression and anxiety because they're, they function differently in the world. Right. Um, and so for many people and myself included, these, these terms are all very healing, very liberating, uh, very useful. And again, you know, some people feel the need for actual diagnosis and some people don't. And that's pretty well accepted within the so-called neurodiversity community. So you make the
1: point in your book that there is also this gender difference. So I thought maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, Why do you think that there is a gender difference? Uh, What is that difference? And let's start with the very beginning and talk about the conception, uh, your conception or or, or how you sort of um, chose to talk about gender in particular, because I think that there's this is a a very important and, and, uh, and controversial field within neuroscience is, you know, how do we genderize a brain? Do we look at um, biological signatures? Can we even differentiate biology from psychology in that way when it comes to gender? So give us a sense of kind of where you stand on the issue of gender and the effect that a person's identity, gender identity might have on the way that society treats their neurodivergent mind?
2: Sure. Yeah. So throughout the book, I use the terms, you know, woman and female. And I, I make very clear that, you know, this applies to trans and non-binary individuals. And that largely these terms, you know, woman and female, that's that's how they're used in in academic research. Now, I mean, so when we're talking about Gender, we're talking about socialization largely, right? So what we're seeing in, in terms of research and, and and lots of interviews and and stories from from women identifying folks is that from a young age, uh, there's more focus on picking up on social cues and sort of blending in um and 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 camouflaging to an extent to, to sort of get along with others. Um so there might be more permissiveness um when it comes to young boys and their behavior and acting out. And so that's kind of the idea. That's what we're working with right now in terms of uh of the academic research. What we're looking at is how women and girls uh perhaps Pass or fly under the radar, mask, camouflage. Now, what's happening for for many women is that there is a lot of severe emotional strain involved in that. So it might be very uncomfortable to be in certain social situations. But you know, from a young age, that's all they've known. They don't know that it's not supposed to be uncomfortable. So that's often why something like ADHD or autism is getting missed. They've also shown in the research that it, women seem to be slightly more inclined to have the more inattentive type of ADHD, so the kind of mind wandering, kind of spacing out during class which is often related to, you know, high creativity and imaginative sort of uh ways of thinking and that kind of thing. But they're still getting missed and it's it's surfacing uh later in life and it's 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 more problematic later. So yeah, so I would say those are the main themes in terms of of gender that that we see in the research right now and that I touch on in Divergent Mind.
1: It certainly is true that more boys get diagnosed with some of these um Labels that you talk about ADHD, autism, than girls do, uh, you know, in, in general, because I think in part uh, to do with the sort of cultural milieu in which they are being evaluated, and and yet when I think about like some of the spokespeople for what's it really like to, to have autism in particular, um, or people who really kind of humanized it, you know, there, there are three names that come to mind. One is Oliver Sacks, who told the stories of people and amplified the messages of two women in particular, I think, that really have done a, a, a phenomenal job at describing what the experience is like. And that is Temple Grandin, and, and Donna Williams. I don't know if you ever came across Donna Williams, book. She wrote a book called um, Nobody Nowhere and then a follow up Somebody Somewhere, uh, where even before Temple Grandin, uh, she, she describes what it's like to have autism. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit to the fact that, even though it does seem to be in the in the literature, in the scientific literature, uh, a bigger emphasis on uh, uh, boys, there you know the, the the people who have been sort of most at least commercially successful at talking about the experience have been these women.
2: That's really interesting, actually. You know, I wouldn't say that that is the uniform perception across the board. I think, um, certainly in some communities, those two voices might be more well known. But I think generally, um, in terms of what I found in the research actually is when, when people think of autism, they think of little boys. Now, I think that's because the focus has been on children. So that was a major differentiator for me um in, in writing this book was focusing, you know, solely on adults and and solely on adult women. But yeah, I would say what I saw in doing the research was um when people think of autism, it's it's primarily young boys. Um now that's also because that's where most of the research is being done. In terms of the success of those two books, um which is so great. I think, you know, every voice is reaching uh, a different, audience. Um, and it's funny when you first brought it up, I thought you were actually going to bring up Hannah Gadsby, who is this successful, you know, Netflix comedian who um, came out as as autistic and it's the focus of her of her latest show, Douglas. Um, and then the other person I thought you were going to mention was Greta Thunberg, who, of course, you know, is the young teenage climate activist who is on the autism spectrum. And so I think that um, when people hear the term autism, I think their association is going to be very different depending on their, their circle and their context.
0: Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: let's talk a little bit about the sensitivity syndromes because I think that you know most of our listeners will probably have heard of ADHD and are quite familiar with it um, most if not all are, are, are probably have a, a relatively decent under understanding of autism spectrum disorder but these hypersensitivity or sen- sensory processing disorders I think are are less well known so I wondered if you could take a minute sort of to Tell us about them. You know, what are the symptoms? What are the implications uh, if you have it? Uh, you know, what is the outcome?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, um, the book dives into five. You know, neurodivergences. So, autism and ADHD are two. And then I also dive into um, synesthesia, which is you know just sort of the crossing of of senses, as well as high sensitivity, and then something called sensory processing disorder. So high sensitivity or, you know, the acronym is HSP for the highly sensitive person. Um, that was a term coined by the psychologist Elaine Aaron in the 1990s. Um, and it, she described it as more of a, of a personality trait. You know, she did not frame it as a, as a disorder. HSP is a reference to just having heightened sensitivity in general, you know, uh, to light and sound. Um, to, to one's own feelings, to the feelings of others, having a really difficult time with rushing. Um, it's often associated with artists and creatives and um, entrepreneurs and writers. So that's HSP. And then uh, sensory processing disorder, the acronym is SPD. That is not officially in the DSM. Um, again, a lot of the research on SPD has been on children UCSF actually has a dedicated lab for SPD. Elisa Marco is, is big at UCSF and SPD refers more to the sort of physical manifestations of sensitivity. So, um, again, this is largely noticed with kids, but adults certainly have it. It's, you know, a sensitivity to different textures, um, such as as clothes, as well as sounds, it can often imply some amount of trouble coordinating one's body in terms of like balance. So, you know, a lot of kids are sent to occupational therapy clinics for something like SPD. And then I incorporated synesthesia as well, because it's, you know, it's it's just a fascinating aspect of the brain. Again, uh, Joel Salinas, who's featured a lot in the book, um, he's an expert in synesthesia, and he himself has synesthesia. And, you know, it's quite remarkable for a, a Harvard Medical School professor to share his insights about it, you know, and what was clear in hearing about synesthesia from him and others was just, you know, again, this experience of sensitivity features very strongly. So in the book, that's why I focus on sensitivity so much, because it does seem to unite the experience of of all five of these neurodivergences.
1: And that also brings me to the question of what do we do with this information now that we have it? You know, I think that that at least in the last ten years, in particular, but maybe even for longer than that, uh, there's been a shift in terms of trying to destigmatize mental illness or mental disorders, or in and, and even the term neurodiversity. I think is a is a step in that direction, uh, and and that's the whole point of thinking about it as a difference rather than a disorder, and so. Let's talk a little bit about if we understand what these differences are, how do we change society in order to make it less burdensome on the person who has these differences, uh, less, you know, emotionally difficult to navigate?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that's a, a big focus of, of Divergent Mind is, you know, really diving into the, the science and the personal experiences of, of all of these things. But then, yeah, what's next? And, and what do we do? Um, because the, the fact is, is that there are so many people out there who do have some kind of of mental difference right and and they're out there they're they're on your teams and they're in your offices or they're in your families and you know it it's really helpful when people can speak more openly about it and you know it it's hard when it's something that that's more hidden and certainly with you know diversity and inclusion efforts that it's it's become a more sort of um Okay, thing to do, you know that the stigma has has reduced slightly, but we still have a long way to go. So, part of my attraction to the term neurodiversity was really its ability to open up the conversation and destigmatize, you know, what it's like to have any form of mental difference. Certainly, at places like Adobe and Yahoo and Verizon, um, and then you know Microsoft and and Walmart, these companies are opening up the conversation, they're holding events around neurodiversity and starting hiring programs and that kind of thing. I just spoke at a design conference where they were really excited about the topic of, of neurodiversity. So, you know, but it's it's not enough to just have like groups dedicated to neurodiversity. Um, what I would really like to see is um, for this to sort of be infused and in, into every sphere, you know, one of the really intriguing and exciting examples that I talk about in the book is, you know, in the field of, of architecture and design, actually, you know, thinking about how we design our, our surroundings, um, you know, and, um, architects and researchers have found that when they're designing with, you know, an autistic client in mind, for example, that that kind of design, it actually ends up being better for everyone in general, you know, in terms of, thinking about how spaces make us feel, um, you know, in terms of feeling calm and 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 regulated um, and, and in terms of our, our color choices. you know, these things don't have to only be considered when we're talking about a, you know, a center for autistic individuals or or a hospital or a mental health ward or something like that. So that's what I would like to see is is sort of, Thinking of these, these principles of like, well, yeah, you know, everyone is, is different in some way, but, you know, can we, can we keep this top of mind, you know, when we're uh, running our, our team meetings or when we're designing buildings and, and yeah, and there's, there's so much more. <laughs>
1: yeah just like you know I remember you know when I was in college i I was on a student council committee whose job it was to make the you know we had a couple hundred thousand dollars to make the campus wheelchair accessible and I remember like one of the things that we had to do is like walk around or go around campus in a wheelchair and notice all the places that were barred to us uh, because of 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 that physical disability and it really opened my eyes. And to this day, it's difficult for me to walk into a building and not think about, you know, does the door swing open in the right direction? Is it slow enough for a person with a wheelchair to come in, just because of this, like, you know, short little experience. And so I can imagine, you know, if you use that, if you, if you give people the same, uh, you know, uh, task, um, when it comes to some of these neurodiversity issues, then I think pretty quickly people could could begin to see the ways in which their own environments can can hamper um, a person's experience if they have these sensitivities, and it's interesting that you bring up this this architectural thing design because I also think that there is a kind of trend in the workplace that is actually going in the wrong direction, which is the sense of um, an open area workspace where, you know, get rid of the cubicle and just have this big open area, which I think it would be really difficult for someone who has sensory processing issues. Am I yes. wrong on that? Or I mean, it just seems like that would be the worst design.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, you're spot on. Yeah. And and I love all the examples that, that you're just talking about. Yeah. No, the open office plans um, are a huge issue, actually, and we're already seeing a lot of backlash. So I think that you know they they will soon fade. Susan Cain, who wrote the book Quiet, you know, she's focused on this issue a lot in terms of the effect of open office plans and on on introverts and and sensitive people. And I interviewed her for the book as well. And yeah, I mean, open office plans create a lot of anxiety, um, definitely more so for people who uh, have sensory processing differences. Um, you know, even in, in my own family, I do have to constantly remind to, you know, say, okay, can you turn down the volume? Or, you know, can we can we speak a little softer? And, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process. And I'm, I'm glad that we're all starting to talk about these things. But I think that again, there are some companies that are are making accommodations. Um, Some people, you know, keep their headphones all the time, like noise canceling headphones, and that's a way to cope. But that's definitely not going far enough. Uh, So yeah, I think we'll see open office plans like fade out for the most part. Or something I recommend in the book is actually, you know, why not having just like a, a variety of different spaces so that we can cater to everyone's preferences? Because some people might prefer that more sort of, Open collaborative desk feeling
1: yeah, so I, I think you know that also gets me to um where we are today, which is in an era in which people's conception of where and how they can do work is rapidly changing, given our our, our current environment, and where all of a sudden people find themselves having to work from home. And I wondered if you might talk to the experience, uh, or or talk about the experience of people who might have some of the neurodiversities that you describe in your book, and what this situation is like for them. I mean, is this is it is it easier? Because to some extent, they have more control over their work environment, because it is in their home? Or do you think that it's uh, even harder for a person who has some of these differences?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's funny, you know, one thing I haven't mentioned yet is just, you know, the extent to which a lot of people who identify as neurodivergent really uh, take to Twitter to kind of share what's going on and express themselves and share their thoughts. So across the board, I would say that most neurodivergent people who I've heard from, or I've talked to, or have been, you know, reading their, their tweets and so forth, um, are just saying that a, you know, not much has changed because, you know, many neurodivergent folks, uh, already do work from home. And secondly, I think many people have this sense of like, well, Hey, like, you know, welcome to our world. Like, you know, there's a lot you all can learn. Um, you know, we prefer things to be quieter and, and more still, and with a lot less switching tasks, a lot less rushing around and commotion and, and that kind of thing. I think that, People are – it's twofold, right? I think people are saying like, well, you know, this is an interesting learning opportunity for for many people. And then I think certainly the the sense of routine change can be somewhat harder as well because I think some people who are perhaps used to working from home alone – who are now, you know, their their partners are there, or their kids are around or something like that. You know, that's also a huge adjustment and so it creates a whole new set of circumstances of like how do you get a, a sensory break? Um, you know. So, you know, but again, it's probably not super different from the rest of the population in that sense. Like, you know, we have to take frequent walks or or take frequent breaks or, you know, really have a section of the house that's just for us. So, I think that the main difference is just like, well, some of us are kind of used to this kind of thing already, whereas many people aren't. Um, But in terms of how to cope and that kind of thing, I I think we're all in this together.
1: So I want to take a moment and um, remind our listeners uh, that Janara's book, Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World That Wasn't Designed for You is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, And I want to end with uh, a kind of, well, I'll just say, I'll just go right out and say it, you know, in the just before we turn the recordings on, um, I used a term that uh, you schooled me <laughs> on the use of. And I think it's important for our audience to hear that. Uh, I was talking about how, You know, we have this term high functioning to describe people who uh, are very successful in society despite their neurodiversity. And you told me that that's a term that really is not not in vogue anymore.
2: Yeah. Well, no, I think like, you know, I definitely don't want to be like schooling anyone, but just like... Um, oh, you should. You should. <laughs> trust
1: me. <laughs> I have
2: no, no problem just, being schooled. <laughs> I love when people are open and and and, and open to learning. And I just, I, I think that's so beautiful. And it's something I talk about a lot, you know, is just like, I think it's important for neurodivergent and neurotypical, you know, for all of us to be working together and collaborating and, and learning from one another. And I think that's just, you know, that is also part of the the meaning of, of neurodiversity. But yeah, we were we were chatting beforehand and I was just saying that in the kind of like neurodiversity community, um, yeah, there's a, a pushback, you know, against using the term high functioning because it, you know, it creates kind of a, a hierarchy. Um, that's for one. And then the other thing is that's really important for, for listeners to know is that you don't always know what somebody's struggles are, right? You don't know everything that they have to go through to be so-called, you know, functioning in the world or to be successful. And there's often an incredible amount of, of hidden struggle and energy and effort. And certainly for some people there's medication and and therapies and that kind of thing, or, you know, people are just not sharing the extent to to, to what they're, to what they're going through. So whereas someone's disability might be very visible and very explicit, for somebody else, they might have, you know, what's called like an invisible disability or a hidden disability, but sort of on the inside, internally, they might have, you know, a similar amount of struggle. It just is not as, as explicit. So yeah, that's sort of um, an explanation for why uh, we generally don't use the term high functioning. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for asking about that. And um, I'm grateful that everyone's learning together.
1: I will try very hard, uh, never to use it again. So, Janara <laughs> Narenberg, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you
2: so much for having me.
1: So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. We could really use your support. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Awald, and Charles Byle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week.